According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can join me in Luke 13 once again. almost said Luke 12. We were in Luke 12 for quite some time, weren't we? Well, moving on to verse 13, or chapter 13. We've been here for a little bit now because the... Uh, the parable of the fig tree and the uh, repent or perish admonition that happens there is in the first nine verses. We're ready to start a new episode this morning, episode 16, the story of a crippled woman, a woman that's bent over double. And uh, this takes us from verse 10 down to verse 17 and gets us ready for the parable of the mustard seed in verse 18. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Everyone pretty well situated, double-checking uh, noise-making devices, things of that nature. All right. Fellowship. Yeah, there you go. Fellowship in, phone off, you know, <laughs> things of that sort. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. All right, let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've set before us and for our uh, early morning prayer time, Father, on behalf of pastors and churches around the country, for the ladies' prayer time, and now for our Bible study. You continue to unfold blessings upon us day by day, moment by moment. We thank you for each one. We are unworthy, Father. We thank you that you are a God of grace, pouring forth your, uh, your glory uh, for the sake of your Son. We thank you for his worthiness. And Father, as we study today, it is his worthiness that we seek. It is uh, his image that we um, are being transformed into. We thank you, Father, that uh, it is your business to predestine us to be molded to the image of your Son. So, Father, thank you for the process that takes place even now. Thank you for the uh, renewing of our mind, Father, that transforms us and protects us against being uh, conformed to this fallen cosmos. Father, bless our study today. Thank you for this woman. We don't know her name. Uh, We'll we'll meet her someday, Father. She uh, suffered for all these years, and yet uh, we want to learn from these lessons here today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty then. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Let's just take it from the top and read straight through, and then we'll come back and glean uh, some of the details on this. Really, five main points to study, and, uh, and then some side issues that, we'll, as we have time, we'll, uh, we'll explore a little bit deeper. Um, He was teaching on in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And you know what's going to happen, don't you? (laughs) As soon as you see the word Sabbath, you think, oh, no, he's going to do it again, isn't he? He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, You are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said all this, as he said all this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. All right, here we have it. Uh, eight verses of uh, material, story, as it were. Good story. I mean, we like the story. But uh, beyond the narrative of what took place are some 
I think, some very important principles that we want to glean from. And, in fact, um, a little bit of, um, of uh, combativeness, a bit of uh, um, edge to his ministry, we might say, in that I think uh, we approach certain things, and, and we do have mandates to not be to, to not cause offense in terms of our responsibilities regarding stumbling blocks. Um, clearly, our stumbling blocks are uh, uh, the uh, priority when it comes to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, is there a stumbling block application when it comes to the uh, the opponents, to the adversaries, to the uh, those that are seeking our downfall and our destruction? Or is there a place in which um, a more confrontational uh, communication is very valid, is very appropriate. I think that's what we're seeing here. The idea of crowds glorifying obviously means that this is teaching that's producing a glory for God the Father, and, and he never does anything apart from the Father's will. This isn't sinful in any way. Uh, I, I, you know, if I was to do a miracle like this and, and have words of such that would bring humiliation to some opponents, um, then I probably would have a, uh, a, a carnal nature that would, uh, <laughs> that would fall into, into realms of uh, inappropriateness. But, but the Lord never does that, see. And so what do we learn from this? What do we learn where we might be able to um, imitate, where we might be able to find ourselves in a similar position? Uh, not, not, not maliciously so. All right. Please don't walk out of here saying, oh, well, you know, pastor says it's okay to humiliate people. I'm not saying that. But I am observing that Jesus humiliated these people. He humiliated these people. That's undeniable. And when he humiliated these people, it produced a glory. That also is undeniable. And so I think there, there, it bears a closer look so that we can evaluate it and understand uh, can or does God the Father use humiliation for a variety of purposes? And I think we'll all readily admit that, yes, he does. Uh, humiliation, shame, sorrow. There is no shortage of, of uh, events and, and occurrences that will drive a person to either the truth or um, further godlessness and further judgment when it comes you know, to that point. Anyway, that's off for the very end. We'll talk about the humiliation there and who these opponents are anyway. Why do we have adversaries? Let's take it back to verse 10 and set our context for this. And a uh, story that's only found in Luke. In fact, Dr. Luke is providing us with a very vivid diagnosis for this woman's condition. Dr. Luke, of course, he's called the beloved physician. And uh, his gospel and the book of Acts are both laced with um, medical terminology uh, above and beyond anything that any other passage of Scripture even approaches. So even if we did not have the reference uh, to Luke as a physician, which I, I usually forget where he's in Colossians or somewhere where he's referred to as the beloved physician, um, even if we didn't have that label elsewhere, we would just know by reading this guy's a doctor based on the terms that he uses and so forth. We have that here. The, uh, the way that he describes the sickness, the way that he describes how she was bent double and uh, could not straighten up either at all or fully, completely. There's a um, compound of teleos here that indicates the completeness of her uh, condition. In any event, it's vivid, but Luke does not allow the medical condition to distract him from the spiritual reality. And that's what we're going to highlight here. This wasn't a disease that was genetically uh, brought on through genetics or brought on through any medical condition. It was a spiritual condition. Her sickness, and I'll give that to you here under subpoint A, her sickness was a spiritual sickness. A spiritual sickness. Literally, she had a spirit, a pneuma, of weakness or sickness, asthenaos. The uh, participle from echo to have. The, um, what's interesting, it says there was a woman. So the verb was is the, the main verb of the sentence. Uh, having 
a sickness, having a spirit of asthenia, sickness. But it was a spiritual sickness with a physical manifestation. A spiritual sickness with a physical manifestation. So if uh, you are having dealings with a doctor, approaching physical manifestations purely on a physical basis, and they seem puzzled, they, they can't figure out the, the pharmacology or they can't figure out the, uh, the pathology or they're, they're, uh, they're rather stumped over what they're observing. Um, you wonder how many doctors today actually stop to ponder the spiritual dynamics behind the you know, physical manifestations that take place. Obviously, if you have a believer, well, that's step one. <laughs> He's suited to think in such terms. The next step is, does he think in such terms? Is he not only a believer, but a believer under doctrinal teaching, to which point he has a frame of reference to identify angelic conflict principles. Sadly, angelic conflict is not being taught in, uh, in many applications. Um, but even the unbelievers recognize that there are physical effects. For example, you can have uh, psychosomatic symptoms and you can think yourself into a whole lot of sicknesses and different things. They try to chalk it off to psychological elements. But let's just handle what the scripture says right here. This spirit, this pneuma, okay? And pneuma can apply to, it's just a word for spirit, can apply to, uh, if it's the, uh, the hagia, Hagias pneuma is the Holy Spirit. If it's the human spirit, it's still the same pneuma vocabulary. If it's um, an evil spirit, as in fallen angels and demons, then it's the same vocabulary. Likewise, uh, a good spirit, uh, an elect angel, would uh, likewise be a, a pneuma. So the vocabulary doesn't tell you. Uh, the adjective that, de- that defines it locks it in. In this case, the adjective is asthenaos, a spirit of sickness, a spirit of uh, Weakness, as it were. There's other spirits that are found. In fact, medieval Roman theology really pursued it, I think, started off on a worthwhile basis, but then they really extended it into realms that went beyond what the scripture supports. But a spirit of wickedness, a spirit of evil, a spirit of uh, timidity, a spirit of uh, those are those are legitimate biblical terms, a spirit of uh, fear where the Paul says we don't have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of, you know, but we have the, the, the sound mind and the sound judgment that we should have. Um, as I said, medieval Roman theology put all kinds of things attaching to spirits, the spirit of lust, the spirit of greed, the spirit of and so forth. And so then they could kind of excuse some of their behavior to say, well, you know, it was the spirit of such and such that came upon me kind of a thing. Go to an exorcist, get it driven away, and, and you're good to go. Um, anyway, some of that will come up in studies. We are actually on track to engage in a very comprehensive angelic conflict development in Second Corinthians. So uh, when we get more into the God of this age, blinding the minds of the unbelieving, we get more into the thorn in the flesh. Uh, the weapons of our warfare, divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. There are um, abundant Second uh, Corinthians passages coming up where this uh, long-promised uh, angelology and demonology will, will come forth. As far as the rest of that goes, the physical manifestation, soon kuptusa, kaime duname anakupsai, the idea of bent over, and then unable to stand, are they're both compounds from a, from a root kupto, and uh, soon kuptusa stands in the um, contrast to ana kupsis, the idea of ana being upward, she can't stand up. She can't stand up. And by that we understand erect, because she's bent. And um, she does not have the dunamis, does not have the power to stand up, Completely. Pon telus. Pon telus. Anyway, the physical manifestation. Dr. Luke is interested in it, but he, he has the capacity to recognize that it's not a health issue. It is, or if it is a health issue, the health issue is secondary. It is a spiritual issue. We're going to see the cure comes twice. There will be a, a freedom that's given, that's simply granted on a declarative basis. He declares her to be free. He loosens her. He declares her to be loosed from the bondage that she's under. And then he lays hands on her and heals the physical uh, consequences of what the spiritual affliction has been doing. 
Give that to you under point B. <laughs> she required freedom as well as healing. Required freedom as well as healing. She required freedom as well as healing. And if you really take the time to think it through, how sad it would be to be physically healed and still spiritually in bondage. Sad. And I hope we keep that in our minds. We, we, we often pray for friends and loved ones and they've got cancer or they've got you know, sicknesses or other things are going on. And I would never tell you to don't pray for those things because there's ground. I mean, there are passages that address that, but put the perspective first in spiritual things, how tragic it would be. Particularly if the person's an unbeliever, goodness, get them saved. That's the uh, that's the first things first. So when Jesus saw her, he called her over. I don't know what to make out of that, if we want to emphasize that a whole lot or stress it or overstress it. He called her over. I think that's kind of cold and heartless, isn't it? <laughs> he should have gone over to where she was. Here's this poor old woman. And we don't know if she's old, but she's old enough to have been enslaved for 18 years. Um, and he calls her over. She has to walk over to him, bent over and so forth. And and uh, there are commentators that view this as, well, you know, this was her act of faith, that she hobbled on over there in her condition and so forth. You know, I, I think people read a lot into it, but um, what I do want to stress is not so much his summons of her, but I do think, though, that the uh, there's a language here of behold. You might have a King James where you have the language of behold, a woman. The idea that he's teaching in the synagogue and then the appearance when he saw her was very vivid, very striking. And uh, and so he either stopped his class or brought her up to the front. What I want to highlight, though, is the freedom. He called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. That's the first order of business. You are freed from your sickness freedom is what she has not healing but freedom she's loosed she's in bondage and we'll see the terminology there it's the same as the fallen angels that are in bondage under bonds of darkness um you know reserved for judgment in, in uh, studies that we've gone into there freedom as well as healing when he tells you are freed or you are released I love the, the, what really brings this passage to light are the verb tenses. Because we have a perfect tense. We have uh, some aorist tenses sprinkled throughout here. We have some imperfect tenses sprinkled throughout here. And the, I think the focusing on the tenses helps us to see the, um, uh, brings it to life in a way maybe that doesn't come across as well in, in the English tenses. Um, but he says, you are released. You have been released. Not just you are freed, but you are having been released. It's the uh, second person singular because he's talking face to face with a woman. So you, second person singular, perfect passive indicative. The perfect tense is past completed action with present ongoing results. So it's not just in the present tense, you are free. You have been loosed. You have been loosed. Apoluo, to loose. Uh, to release this uh, one of the earliest Greek words you ever learn is luo. All your memorization tables are based on the verb luo, and then you get the compound of apoluo. Uh, but you know, John the Baptist knew he was unworthy to even unloose the the little ties on on Jesus' sandals. See, um, the idea of being loosed and uh, the freedom that we have in Christ. All of these principles are coming here. She has been bound now. Um, Partly we need to, we're going we're gonna to walk out of here maybe unsatisfied. <laughs> All right. So if you're hoping for more answers than I'm prepared to give you this morning, I'll just, I'll just let you know right now, um, I'm not going to satisfy the curiosity, the questions, any of that. We're going to have more questions than answers when we're done here at the top of the hour. Um, what form did this bondage take? The text doesn't say. And if the text doesn't say, we can't just make stuff up or read into it. All right. There are no parallel texts to tell us other than, clearly, the personal name of Satan is viewed in verse 16. 
The language of bondage is used both in the verb to bind and the noun uh, of, uh, of the bond itself. Uh, verse 16 uses them both. She has uh, been bound, that's the verb, and she should be released from this bond, that's the noun, on this Sabbath day. So uh, Satan is involved. And that right there, man, I really want to find out more. Because, you know, Satan doesn't just personally get involved in things very often. You know, he focused on Job, he focused on David, focused on Peter, focused, of course, on Jesus, uh, focused on Moses. You know, by and large, Satan doesn't get personally involved. Uh, he has minions and lackeys and agents and so forth. Um, the fact that this woman has come under his attention is, uh, is noteworthy. All right? That's noteworthy. Although, to be fair, um, you can still use the name Satan. Satan has bound her for 18 years. You can still legitimately use that expression, even if it is a minion, a lackey, a subordinate. Uh, you know, it's Satan's system. It's Satan's uh, power structure. It's Satan's agent. Maybe it is a minor functionary demon of whatever sort, this spirit of weakness. Um, so, again, we want to just be cautious against reading too much into that. You have been released. That happens first. And then he lays hands on her. Then he touches her. Okay? And that epitithemi, tithemi is to put her to place. It's compounded with epi to place upon because he placed his hands upon her. Uh, but that's the aorist tense, the aorist active indicative. So the contrast, the perfect tense, you have been released, followed by the aorist, which is simply punctiliar point of time, he laid hands on her. Okay, and and it's it's the follow up, it's the it's uh, icing on the cake. All right, uh, now that she's been released and the demons uh, are expelled, see. Um, probably the wrong term. I don't believe she was possessed. Believers cannot be possessed. Um, but she was afflicted. Like Satan was afflicted with boils. Paul was afflicted with the blindness and whatever else happened there in the thorn in the flesh. This woman was afflicted in a bent double condition. Uh, still had her faculties though. Still was able to respond. Still was able to come when summoned. Still was able to, uh, you know, she was compass mentis enough to show up at synagogue worship and study the scriptures see so uh, she wasn't possessed she was not a demoniac anyway the uh, perfect tense on the permanent nature of having been released followed by the aorist of laid hands on her shows us the two-step process the release was the first priority freedom from the bondage was first priority and then the uh, physical healing through the laying on of hands restored her health. Immediately she was straightened up. Immediately she was straightened up. The release didn't do it, but the laying on of hands is what straightened her up. Again, more vividness. We have our, uh, what do you call that in medicine, uh, orthodontics? That's teeth, right? And... Uh, other ortho fields for bones and ortho fields for different things. This is ana ortho for uh, straighten up. Ana meaning up and ortho to straighten. And it's a passive. Again, it's an aorist. The aorist passive matches the aorist active. Uh, she was straightened as he laid hands on her. It matches up perfectly. Uh, passive tense, of course, she didn't do anything about it. It was done to her. His uh, healing put her in this um, erect condition. That's another thing. I don't know if you've ever noticed. Uh, to me, and we've got nurses here, but to me, some of the um, consequences of the miracles are more miraculous than the healing themselves. Okay? I mean, like the uh, uh, making the lame to walk. Well, beyond the fact that the legs are strengthened or whatever else happens, the, the idea that here's a guy that hasn't walked in years and years and years. Uh, what does he have for atrophy? You know, what does he have for uh, even equilibrium, balance? You know, you haven't walked in years and years, and now you're standing up for the first time, and you start walking and dancing and carrying your pallet and going home. To me, the 
after effect. The man born blind, right? Wouldn't the light have been overwhelming or anything like that? I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. I think the miracles are more miraculous than we even think about when we start to take into account all of the other um, attendant circumstances with, with the things involved. So uh, immediately she was straightened up and continually she glorified God. We have a perfect tense followed by an aorist and an aorist and now an imperfect tense. Imperfect doesn't mean flawed. It's just a grammatical term. An imperfect tense that shows the continuous action. Okay, The laying on of hands was instantaneous. The straightening up was instantaneous. But the glorifying was not just a single uh, throwaway, hallelujah, praise God kind of thing. It was a continuous glorification that lasted for uh, extended period of time. Likely uh, all day and several days and weeks and months following, she was continually glorifying God. New American Standard, they viewed this uh, ingressively as the beginning of the process. Um, he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and they put in italics, began glorifying God, showing that it is a lengthy process. It is a repeated activity. It is a continuous action which what the uh, imperfect tense stipulates. Active voice. She's the uh, one who accomplishes the activity. She's the active agent in the glory. She is communicating her praise for what the Father has done on her, on her behalf. Doing so on a continuous basis. Synagogue official. <laughs> Does he join her in the glory? Does he share in her estimation? No. Don't forget, glorification is a testimony. When you glorify, you are not making him any more glorious. Right? He's already infinitely glorious. And he's not, you don't make him more glorious when you glorify him. And you don't make him any less glorious when you don't glorify him. Okay? Um, glorify, the, the worst thing about glorify is the phi ending <laughs> in English. All right? Worst thing is the phi ending. Because the phi ending to us means that uh, we are somehow affecting a change. If I mystify you. Right? If I simplify matters, that would be better. If, uh, if I clarify what I'm talking about, or liquefy, or purify, or, or humidify, or dehumidify. See, the worst thing we have with that glorify word, or the fication nouns, are, is the idea that we are bringing about a change in a condition of something. Okay? And we needed to, maybe I just need to invent a word and send it to the dictionary people and, and permanently change our language T to get rid of the, the fication ending of doxadzo, of glorification, glorify, okay? Because uh, the, the docheo, thinking that underlies doxadzo, uh, shows us that, that it, is a, it is an estimation principle. It is our thinking that is being brought into a verbalization. And everything I glorify, what I'm doing is communicating my thinking with respect to somebody's worthiness. When I glorify God, I'm communicating my estimation of His worthiness. And I, I'm trying to influence you so that you will adjust your thinking of his worthiness, bringing it up to where my thinking of his worthiness is. So the effect, the change or effect that takes place is not in God, but in somebody else's estimation of who God is, how glorious God is. And this woman certainly has quite a bit that she can use to influence people's estimation So continually she glorified God. Now this woman was a believer. I don't think I put, I got more notes, but I didn't put it on the slide. Um, you know, you know, it's first thing. She's healed. She has capacity to glorify. Capacity to worship. Capacity to praise. An unbeliever has no such capacity. All right. Likewise, she's called her a daughter of Abraham. 
very significant title. Recognition that, um, that you know, we're sons and daughters of Abraham by means of faith. When you believe God and it's reckoned to you as righteousness, you become a child of Abraham. Not just simply that she's Jewish. Everybody in the story is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. The disciples are Jewish. The, the synagogue official is Jewish. Uh, you can't just take this title of daughter of Abraham as just being a meaningless expression of her, of her racial heritage. It is an expression of her faith. This daughter of Abraham. I always thought that was interesting how um, in the Narnia series, how, how C.S. Lewis used son of Adam and daughter of Eve. Did you ever pick up on that? And, and okay, it stipulates their humanity. Uh, I got that. Okay. But in Adam is the lost estate. You know, the, the testimony of faith is the son of Abraham, daughter of Abraham, as per Galatians and as per, well, anyway. I always thought, isn't that interesting? And then, who am I to straighten out C.S. Lewis? All right. Then answered the angry Archisunagogos. Then answered the angry Archisunagogos, the synagogue official. The synagogue official called an Archisunagogos. There's some alliteration at work here. It's in the Greek, so I've carried it over into English. Um, answered the angry Archie. Why did he get angry? Yeah. God did a work. If you're a co-worker, you should be happy about it. <laughs> if you are a opponent working for other objectives, then you may not be happy about it. You may be just the opposite. You may be angry about it, indignant at it. And he has an answer. Now, I find it interesting the... the uh, Synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, began answering. You know, notice answering. It's a fun use of answer. Um, because anybody ask him anything? <laughs> what was he asked? Who asked him anything? Nobody. The woman certainly didn't. Jesus didn't. Although, to be fair, the term is used in many applications, even when nothing is asked uh, as, and it's translated answered, but speaking up in response to something is a, is a, is a good way to think of it. Or as the New American Standard does right here, um, uh, began saying to the crowd in response, saying in response. So he was giving an answer, basically trying to repudiate the, the great miracle. And, uh, you know, you, you learn a lot about people when they, the, by the way they react to different things. And uh, if, if they have to, if they're making excuses for something or they're, or they're um, denying something or they're, um, they're upset about the way something's done, it really, really shines a spotlight on what the attitude is um, you know, behind that. All right, so then answered the angry Archisunagogos. If you don't want to write that all out, just write out whatever you wanted to point to. But it is alliterative. Apokrithes de ha Archisunagogos. So we have the alliteration there with the Greek letters, the alpha. The Archisunagogos, the ruling, the synagogue ruler, like archangel or archbishop, right? Or arch. Uh, shepherd, the, the chief shepherd of your soul. A lot of arch compounds, archy compounds. Um, the ruler of the synagogue. And, and uh, interestingly enough, in, in Judaism of this time, this was an official title, actually. He wasn't a uh, teacher. He would be what we would think of more as a deacon. He would be uh, in charge of the building itself. He would be a caretaker. He'd be in charge of... Uh, making sure you know the lights were on, the doors are open, the the uh, air conditioning is running, the the trash is taken out, things like that. He's the ruler of the synagogue in the sense of the the physical plant itself. Uh, probably uh, security, crowd control, right? That's kind of an indicator here where the, you know there's six days six days in which work can be done, so come during one of them and get healed, kind of a thing. Um, <laughs> Interestingly enough, though, 
uh, who's going to heal this woman on those other days? This is the day that Jesus is there. He's there for the teaching. He's there on the Sabbath. Say, um, anyway. Uh, the, the idea of indignant, indignant, is there's lots of different words for anger. It's not the heat of passion. This is not wrath. This is not, this is an anger that really stems from um, a personal offense. That somehow you are um, offended. You just are livid because it, your sensitivities are, uh, you're taking it personally. <laughs> All right. You're taking it personally. And this is the only place that's used in Luke. Matthew uses it three times and uh, in Mark also three times. And they all parallel Matthew's use. Let's uh, we don't have to read them all, but the Matthew uses are worth while this should be familiar to you. And just notice as we go through these, notice how um, subjective this anger is. OK. You know, I mean, yeah, there's there's objective things that will make anybody angry, right? But subjective anger where your pride has been hurt and where you personally have been offended. I think really that's more the tenor of what we have here with with ah uh, ganakteto ah ganakteo Strong's number twenty three A G A N A K T E O. All right, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 24, it's the, uh, the disciples, the ten, that uh, didn't have a mother that was the uh, sister of Jesus' mother. <laughs> All right, the ten that weren't trying to uh, score uh, assigned seating in the, uh, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So we read in Matthew 20, 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. Okay. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And, and, and I've always pondered this. This is one of my questions when I get to heaven. Sitting on your right, sitting on your left. Well, isn't Jesus at the right hand of the Father? Right? So the disciple that's going to sit on Jesus' left, is he going to just push God the Father off of his seat? What's? You never think of these things, do you? I, I stay up late at night thinking, I think too much. All right. But I'm going to ask this question. I'm going to figure this out. Probably the reference is the, the banquet table on the millennial earth. So the Father's still up on his throne. Anyway, in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right, one on your left. So, yeah, here's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder, two of his twelve apostles, and they're uh, they're they're uh, they're they're claiming dibs, right? They're calling shotgun. They're 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 claiming assigned seating here, just like little kids would do when you're getting in the car or going somewhere. All right, and there's they uh, they even get their mom in on it, so you know that their mom can can make this request for them. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? <laughs> they said, oh, yep, we can do that. We are able, just as prideful as Peter, right? And Peter said, oh, I would never deny you. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, meaning martyrdom, meaning suffering for the work of, of uh, God the Father. But to sit on my right and on my left, it is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father God the Father has already designated the seating there for the glorification of His Son. That's the Father's grace, eternal plan of the ages. The eternal magnification of Jesus Christ from Alpha to Omega. All right? In fact, we've got a book on the way. It'll tell you something about that. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. All right? So that's the setting and that's the attitude. The ten became indignant with the two brothers. They grew angry. They were personally offended so he's got to use this as a teaching opportunity. Called them to himself and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. See, in a lot of cases, the fallen mentality of humanity in a fallen cosmos is going to get wrapped up over um, power struggles. I'm sure you've noticed, right? Any workplace I've ever been in. Any... Uh, you know, any earthly institution I've ever been in. 
power struggles, pecking orders, okay, in government. I used to work for a government agency. In um, politics, all right, just common to man. It's the nature of fallen humanity in a fallen cosmos system, getting all wrapped up over pecking orders and different things. The, I think that, the, you know, the Archie Sunagogos, what's he wrapped up about? He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's in charge. What's this woman doing coming in here like that, all bent over and disrupting things? And, and who does Jesus think he is? He's healing on the Sabbath. He's a Sabbath breaker. What does he think he's doing? Why do he have to do this in my synagogue kind of a thing? So that's the first example. Next chapter over, Matthew twenty-one fifteen. What is it that makes you indignant? And then ask, why does it do that? <laughs> who do I think I am? Why was I offended? Why was my pride hurt? All right, 21.15. Oh, and here's the uh, driving out uh, the money changers from the temple for the second time. And uh, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to David, the son of David, you know, they're singing, they're praising, they're quoting Scripture. They became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these little children are saying? <laughs> Jesus could turn it right back to him and said, Yeah, are you listening? <laughs> Do you hear what they're saying? Can you quote the scripture they're quoting? Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? Are you paying attention to what's going on? Or are you so indignant because your feelings are hurt? And then the last one is Luke 20, is Matthew 26, verse 8. In the house at Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, and a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this. And said, why this waste? This perfume might have been sold for a higher price than the money given to the poor. All right. It's always interesting. When money comes into the picture, then attitudes can uh, be skewed and some subjectivity can manipulate things. Hmm. They became indignant. Anyway, the Mark parallels are the same as the stories we just read. Mark 10, 14 and 41. Mark 14, 4. I think the order is different, but the, the same three match up with the same three stories we just read. Synagogue official was angry at Jesus' Sabbath healing, but he focused his anger towards the crowds. He didn't ask Jesus what he was doing. Didn't ask Jesus, how dare you, or what do you think you're doing, or didn't even want to talk to Jesus. He turned to the crowds. He addressed them. Said, uh, you know, there's six other days we can come in here and get healed. Don't come here on the Sabbath for your healing. I'm going to take it out on the crowd. I find that interesting. But you know, he didn't just make this up himself. He was in perfect agreement with the Pharisee teaching. The synagogue official held to the doctrine. This is point B. The synagogue official held to the doctrine that getting healed should be considered working. Getting healed was working. You know, not only getting healed passively, but the one doing the healing, he was also a Sabbath breaker. So Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. This woman's a Sabbath breaker. We've encountered this already in the past. Um, but just by way of reminder, Matthew chapter 12, this has already been adjudicated. It's already been decided. Jesus challenged the Pharisees on this. They didn't like it because it clearly violated their standards. But uh, too bad for them. He wasn't <laughs> subject to their standards. In Matthew 12, it was the story of the withered hand. And uh, they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they did so not because they were positive to doctrine. They wanted information. They did so so that they might accuse him. They were waiting for him to say, yes, there's nothing wrong with that. So that then they could convict him and say, oh, see, he's a Sabbath breaker. He doesn't understand the, the uh, Pharisee traditions, the Jewish traditions. 
And so he doesn't answer yes, he doesn't answer no. He turns it back to them and says, well, what man is there among you who has a sheep? If it falls into a pen on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. You know, do you wait till Sunday to get your sheep out of the pit? None of them would. None of them ever would. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is it is lawful. It is permitted. It is consistent with the plan of God, the revealed word of God. There's nothing wrong with it. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he has a, uh, a healed hand. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Yeah, how many people were they healing in the synagogues on Sabbath day, right? This guy says, come back any, you know, six days a week, come back. What's he going to do about it if she comes back tomorrow? <laughs> so, um, anyway, the pattern repeats itself. The pattern repeats itself. And uh, that's what we're dealing with. All right, point three then. Jesus labeled the synagogue attitudes as hypocritical. Notice the plural address. He's not just talking to this one guy. He's talking to the guy, the crowds, and really any Pharisee who may hold to the view that miracles are off limits on the Sabbath. It's not work. It's a spiritual function. It's not, uh, as we've studied, remember, Sabbath breaking is the pursuit of secular employment. Sabbath breaking is uh, turning your back on spiritual matters and pursuing earthly matters. The seventh day was designed, six days you may work, that is, pursue, make a living, pursue a career, pursue income to sustain your family. The seventh day is the day for serving God. And that means anything. That means Bible study, it means worship, it means uh, sacrifice, it means uh, certainly obeying the will of God can't violate the Sabbath. And since a miracle by definition is a work of God then if God gives the power to do the miracle, then he doesn't have a problem with it being done on the Sabbath because <laughs> he's the one that empowered it to get done. Remember the, uh, the logic that Jesus employed. He said, you know, um, every, every male son, every, every boy that's born on a Friday is commanded to be circumcised on the eighth day. So that means every Friday baby boy is going to have a Saturday circumcision eight days later. And so, is that work? You know, or do, you, do you violate the Sabbath when you circumcise your boy? And, and see, he, he draws that logic because it was their own logic he was able to draw against them. The rabbis had already thought about that. They'd already balanced that out. They'd already chewed on it and tossed the idea back and forth. And they decided, no, you don't violate the Sabbath when you obey what God wants you to do. Okay? You don't violate the Sabbath when you offer the, the you slaughter the animals and offer the sacrifices God tells you to do. You don't violate the Sabbath when you are obeying God's commands. And so Jesus uses that and says, well, you know, if you circumcise and don't break the Sabbath, then my miracles don't break the Sabbath. See, and they had no answer for that. Well, in verse 15, take a note with me here that he is speaking to hypocrites, plural. You hypocrites. And you really wonder, this uh, Archisunagogos seemed to know his crowd <laughs> and seemed to be having some uh, effect with his crowd. They are really the only them in view here for the plural audience that Jesus would be rebuking, you hypocrites. Um, this isn't lifting a sheep out of a pit, but this is a similar illustration. He says, uh, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? You know, of course, every day you're going to feed the animals every day. You're going to, uh, but you know, they, of course, rightly said, well, that's not Sabbath breaking. That's just normal life. All right. Jesus labeled all such synagogue attitudes as hypocritical. They treat their animals better than they treat their Bible students. How's that? You know, what better day for a healing? I mean, forget the other six days of the week. Sabbath is the best day in the world to be provided rest. It's a day of rest. Give this woman some rest. 18 years, isn't that long enough? Want to wait one more day, come back on Sunday morning? 18 years is long enough. 
So they treat their animals better than they treat their Bible students. And we've already read in Matthew 12, are you not worth much more than these? Are you not worth more valuable than a sheep? You pull a sheep out of a pit. Why, why do you mistreat this woman? Very next chapter, actually, we're going to come back to it again because in chapter 14, Pharisees on the Sabbath, watching them closely. <laughs> they actually invited him to their house so they could watch him even closer. <laughs> so Jesus said, you know what? There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Yeah, that was a coincidence. They put him right there in his face to see what he was going to do about it. So Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees. There's another answer. Who asked him anything? But he's going to answer. He's going to speak up in reply. Okay. Some of that, as I mentioned, is idiomatic. It's actually a Hebraism. Answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. <laughs> See, they've already lost this argument. What, three times now? Five times now? How many times have they lost this? So what can they say? They can't say anything. They keep silent. He took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. So, anyway, it, uh, it continues and it's only going to intensify again and again. And he never backs down. And I like that. He never backs down. Point four. This woman has been under satanic bondage for 18 years. This woman has been under satanic bondage for 18 years. How long has Christ been in ministry? <laughs> Three and a half years. Okay. Um, again, some of the details we're going to just be left wanting. We're not going to know. But um, now this is different from the woman that had the hemorrhage. She had the hemorrhage for 12 years. And uh, this woman has been under the uh, satanic um there's no mention of blood in this passage, but that she was bent over double, that it was a spinal condition or whatever it was. But, um, of course, there's skeptics that say, well, the, the legends are all confused. It was really the same woman. And, and no, there's none of that. Luke tells both stories. He tells the story of the woman with the hemorrhage, and he tells the story here. Uh, he's not confused. He doesn't have his history wrong. Two different women, two different struggles. This one is spiritual. All right. And uh, deo, D-E-O, number 1210, is the verb. And uh, desmos, D-E-S-M-O-S, number 1199, is the noun. Deo and desmos, pretty common. Common throughout the New Testament. 18 years. What was she doing wrong? Was it her fault? Say, like the man born blind, was it his fault? Why do these things take so long? For the glory of God. They're as long as they need to be. They're as long as they need to be for her. They're as long as they need to be for Jesus. They're as long as they need to be for the synagogue official. She's not the only one under this test. All right. Uh, how long was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Well, from the moment he received it, 14 years ago when he wrote 2 Corinthians, to the day he died. All right. Um, even one more day is one day too long. <laughs> okay. When you know what the will of God is, when you know what He wants you to do, you want to wait till tomorrow? If, in fact, this bondage has reached its conclusion, if, in fact, the purpose for this bondage is done, then why continue? There is no more purpose for it to continue. God does not do anything without a purpose. He does all things after the counsel of His will, which means God does nothing for no reason. The 18 years was precisely the length it needed to be. And when she comes face to face with Jesus in this town, in this synagogue, on this day, this is the time for her to be released. So even one more day is one day too long. You know, how long are we going to uh, be delayed in our building program? How long, uh, exactly as long as God wants us to be? Right? How long is Cliff going to wait for a, a pulpit to be provided? As long as God's plan calls for it to be. Not one day too long, not one day too short. All right. The Sabbath day is quite appropriate for spiritual freedom. In my mind, it's the most perfect day there is of any of the days of the week. It's quite appropriate for spiritual freedom. It's the purpose for the day. is to dwell on the things of the Lord. 
you know, and of course we're not, we don't have church age Sabbath obligations because uh, to us it's day after day as long as it's called a day. We have a spiritual Sabbath, the, the faith rest of our soul, the attitude of rest. But still, um, it has been the, the common Christian tradition all the way back to the first century that Sunday is the Lord's day and that uh, we can dedicate additional teaching times on that day. And most folks don't work on that day. Some do depending on their career and, and all of that. Um, but hey, you know, I work every Sunday, right? <laughs> you know, the Sabbath day is quite appropriate for spiritual freedom. Nah, that's not work. Are you kidding me? I can't believe I get paid for this. Now, stay tuned because some of the more um, detailed looks into the demons involved lead you to wonder on different things. Satan has both angels and demons at his disposal for achieving his purposes. Satan has both angels and demons at his disposal for achieving his purposes. And uh, you may equate the two, and many pastors equate the two. Pastor Theme said angels are demons. It's all the same. Okay, A lot of, a lot of folks take that approach. Um, but um, there is a word for angel. It's angelos. There is a word for demon, daimon or daimonion. And uh, verbal plenary inspiration tells me that words mean things. And uh, they may be used on an interrelated basis. There are limited conditions in which they might be used interchangeably. But I also think there are significant passages that make it clear that they cannot be strictly synonymous. And so I teach a distinction between angels and demons. So Matthew 25:41, Satan and his angels. Revelation 12:9, uh, the dragon was thrown down and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. Again, Satan and his angels. There was warfare in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war against Satan and his angels. So Satan has angels at his disposal. He also has demons at his disposal. Matthew 9:34, Matthew 12:24. He is the ruler of demons. Um, he was accused of casting out demons by the ruler of demons in a couple of applications. So what was this thorn in the flesh? What was this agent? What was this pneuma, this spirit? And partly, um, I think uh, some folks equate angels and demons because both are termed spirits. Angels are spirits. Demons are spirits. And so they say, well, if angels are spirits and if demons are spirits, then angels must be demons. That's the logic, but it's a flawed logic because guess what? God is spirit. Is God a demon? <laughs> All right. And so, uh, and you are spirit. You are body, soul, and spirit. Are you a demon? So uh, don't uh, don't fall for the trap that well, angels are spirits, um, demons are spirits. Angels must be demons. That's not hold true. Okay. I'm an American. You're an American. I must be you. <laughs> okay. It's uh just pick up some logic. All right. Um more to do on this. And like I say in uh 2 Corinthians with the thorn in the flesh, we're going to understand how can the demons afflict us? And why would God permit such a thing? And uh you know, what uh, what doctor should we go to to say um uh, I think this is a a, a pneuma asthenias. Um there's no antibiotic for pneuma asthenias, okay? No surgery. No, uh, it, it will be a spiritual provision for a spiritual affliction. And it will happen when the Father determines it will happen, not as a result of prayer. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul asked three times, uh, you know, get rid of this thing. My grace is sufficient for you. All right. I thought I was going fast enough. I was really, really working hard. But there's one more point. And it is the final point. It's the point of uh, opponents and humiliation. And uh, what happens here with the slanderers? Notice the um, slanderers. And um, the opponents here are the slanderers being humiliated. The entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Um, Slander is the realm of the adversary. I think sometimes we overlook the fact. We think of, well, he's the devil. Devil doesn't mean uh, jerk. Devil doesn't mean bad. Devil means 
slanderer. Okay, slanderer. And uh, we want to understand what happens here with the humiliation and, and uh, the slanderous, because this is the brood of vipers at work. They're reflecting the desires of their father. And uh, so, okay, we'll take a little bit, uh, probably not the whole time next week, to wrap up point five, and then we'll move on to mustard seed, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven in verses 18 through 21. Thank you, Father, for this day, for our time together. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.